let's get into the message uh, today. If you have a Bible, turn it open to Psalm 73. I almost said Luke because we've been preaching through Luke for like a year and a half. So anyway, Psalm 73. Let's pray uh, before we get into the message. Lord God, we thank you for your grace that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, to relate to us, to redeem us, to draw our lives into uh, an intimate connection with you. What an awesome thing. And God, as we wrestle this morning with doubt and, and learn from the psalmist how to wrestle with doubt in our lives, we ask that your spirit would speak to us, enable us to, to hear your word, believe and respond and, and believe in obedience because you're worthy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at doubt today as we continue this wrestling series, looking at some of the big questions and the things that kind of cause us to wrestle with God. And if you look at the experience of doubt, if you kind of pulled apart the anatomy of doubt, uh, what, you, what you see is an intellectual claim that we agree with in our head, but then our hearts tell us, like, hang on, I don't know if I can buy this. Psalms like this one, like Psalm 73, help us because they are incredibly realistic. These are psalms that are not full of high-minded religious language. It's not flowery, it's earthy, it's authentic, it's real, and it's honest. And in fact, one of my friends said that uh, this is one of the psalms where people's doubting words to God have become God's word to doubting people. And so as we wrestle with doubt, there's no better place to go than to the Psalms where it's kind of laid out for us in real time from the psalmist himself. And so it's actually a fairly profound and comforting thought that God is not defensive. He is not afraid of doubt. He is not concerned by these kinds of questions. He's not scared or upset by human doubts. And in fact, he uses these words expressing doubt as well as trust to become his words to the doubting, to pave the road for their path to truth and meaning. So today we're looking at the Psalm of Asaph. He's the, the author of this and several other Psalms. And Asaph is most likely a priest. He's from the tribe of Levi. It's the priestly tribe in Israel that represents God to the people and they have kind of special worship duties. He's one of King David's musicians and probably worship leaders. He's a spiritual leader and he's praying through his crisis of doubt. So two things I want to show you this morning. First is we're going to learn about the experience of doubts. And then we're going to learn the cure to our doubts, okay? So first, let's get into the experience of doubt. What is going on in the psalm to show us what it looks like to have an authentic experience of doubt? The first thing he starts with in verse 1 is, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He starts off with this assertion, this faith claim that surely, truly, God is good to to Israel. In fact, there are this, this word truly appears three times. The psalm is organized around this word. Truly God's good to Israel. Truly um, shows up a few times here. So he says from the start, this core confession of the Bible, God is good. He's good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. And so Asaf begins with this statement of faith that he knows he should say, but then he says, not so fast. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. 
For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he begins with what he thinks he should say. Surely God's good to Israel. But then he gets in to how he's feeling about this. He says, hold on, I don't know that I actually buy that right now. And he uses two metaphors to convey this, this, this experience of doubt. He uses two metaphors, the metaphor of slipping and the metaphor of losing a foothold. Now, if you think about slipping and losing your foothold, it's not quite strong enough to have in your mind like tripping on a sidewalk. What, what kind of journey, what kind of experience is required for a firm foothold and a, a tight grip on the ground? You think about a climb. You think about climbing a steep rock face or, 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 or a rocky trail along a cliff. And it tells us something of the spiritual journey. That the, the journey with God can be kind of compared to a climb on a steep rock face. It takes effort and intentionality. And with each step, there's this trust of each rock that you put your foot on. That, that, that you're putting your weight into what you are placing your feet on. And he's saying this is like the spiritual life with each step, with each move, with each breath. We're putting our weight into something. And he says, I came to a point where I almost slipped in this walk with God. I didn't, but I almost slipped. I almost lost my foothold. It's a provocative kind of image, isn't it? It's this image of disorientation, of losing footing in a difficult ascent. He's describing spiritual vertigo. I don't know if you've ever had vertigo, but you think everything's fine, and then all of a sudden your room starts spinning, and like, what happened? You know, it's like nothing feels right, and things start turning. And and he doesn't use the word doubt anywhere in this psalm, but all throughout it he describes the experience of doubt. This metaphor tells us what doubt is like from the inside. And tells us how doubt works. Three things about the experience of doubt. First of all, it, it, it tells us that this experience of Asaf tells us that doubt can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone. You see, uh, it doesn't make a difference if you are a spiritual leader like Asaf. Or if you are someone who has no interest in Christianity at, at all. Or any, anything spiritual. It should strike us that Asaf isn't just a normal Israelite, he's a Levite. And more than that, he's an author of scripture, for crying out loud. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't put that one on my spiritual resume. And if you think that you can, let's have a conversation after. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm just a pastor, we're a dime a dozen, but he's authored scripture. I, I don't have that one under my tool belt. And yet doubt is a part of his journey. So if it can happen to us off, learn to expect it in your own life. And now let's learn how to face it when it happens. So it happens to anyone. And then next thing we see is what the experience of doubt consists of. So when you're climbing on a rocky path, and you are, have this route in mind, and you think about a footing, and then something unexpected happens, you lose your footing, you become disoriented, you lose your balance, you have this kind of vertigo experience. What's happening in your life is you have like no categories for what's going on. It's like losing your footing. Your head says one thing, but your heart's saying another. I don't know if you've ever had that, where you just don't know where to put things. You don't have a category for what you're experiencing. You know, he's saying, look, I thought God was good to his people. And this situation I'm in doesn't seem 
to fit. I can't reconcile these things. We have our own views of what a good God and God doing good should look like and feel like. And then something unexpected happens and you lose the job or like the tension exists in the marriage and the kid doesn't go the way you thought he was going to go. And, and then this child dies or these things happen. This coworker gets the promotion and, 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 and you, you get nothing. And these things don't fit and it's disorienting and you don't know where to put it and you can't make sense of it. And it's this powerful image of what doubt is like. So what is it that Asaph doesn't have categories for? What is it that he doesn't know how to fit together? Look look what he says in verse 3. He says, I saw, I saw the arrogant. Or I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he looks out and he sees the prosperity of wicked people. And the word for prosperity is shalom. So I, I envied the arrogant when I looked out and I saw the, the shalom of the wicked. And shalom is God's good uh, design for the world. It's well-being, it's peace, it's harmony, abundance, wholeness, the fully integrated, totally webbed together relationship of all things, right? It's the way things ought to be, in other words, in shorthand. And so he looks out and he says, I don't have shalom, but the wicked does. Shalom is supposed to be the result of God's goodness towards his people. It's supposed to be what happens when you keep your heart pure and relate to this God rightly. And Asaph has this vision of shalom for God's people, but then he looks out and he sees the arrogant and the wicked and they're experiencing shalom. Yet they're the very ones who violate shalom. They're the ones who are against God and against his people. He says, in other words, I saw people experiencing shalom who have an abundance of material things. These are people who are well off. They're rich. They don't seem to experience troubles the way other people do, he says. They think they're better than other people, right? He says they wear pride as a necklace and violence as a garment. They have no regard for others. They seemingly think they're above the rules. They have plenty to eat. They look good, right? They're healthy. They're actually against God and say things like, how can God know, right? They're, they're the arrogant. Life's easy for them. They don't experience the same difficulty that Asaph faces. They do whatever they want. Not only do they get away with it, people look up to them. People are drinking in what it is that they're living out. This is a jarring experience if you have an expectation of shalom to be the result of God's goodness towards those who are pure in heart. It's a jarring experience. And, and, and so as a people who've opted against him to get peace, you've just got to be asking the question, like, what the heck? What's going on? Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Right? At the start he says, God's good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. Now he says, it's a waste. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Right? And he says, I thought it was good to be pure. And I was. I'm not so sure I can say that anymore because I'm not seeing how it works out. They get shalom and all I get is punishment and plague. And Asaf had clearly had a personal experience that causes him to question all this. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was some real loss, some real affliction, and it doesn't square with what he knows of God. 
But for a lot of us, when we think about doubt, we think about something in our heads, like it's an intellectual issue. But here in Psalm 73, what we learn about doubt is that it is caused by life circumstances. Doubt comes out of our experience. It comes out of something happening in our heart that doesn't square with what's in our head. See, humans aren't just brains, right? We're actually whole people and we frame our entire world through the lens of all the emotions and experiences and relationships that we have. And so every experience of doubt is like this lake that's being fed by different rivers and different sources. Some of them are ideas, but most of them are experiences. You're telling me God's a good father? Well, the only thing I know is a a father who isn't present or a father who only pays attention when I'm interested in what he's interested in or whatever it is. Your life experience goes, I can't buy that. And so... When we have doubt, we have to ask ourselves, what are the circumstances in my life that makes my heart question? See, Asaf doesn't tell us the specifics of what's going on, and he doesn't have to, and that helps it be relatable for us, because we, we can relate to that kind of disorientation. We know it's unpleasant for him, but just because his experience is unpleasant doesn't mean that it's bad. That brings us to the next, next aspect about uh, the experience of doubt. See, first of all, it can happen to anyone. Second of all, it, it arises out of the circumstances and experiences of life. But third of all, doubt creates an incredible opportunity to grow. Doubt creates this opportunity for growth. There's positive potential in doubt. So first of all, Psalm 73 would have never happened if this experience hadn't happened for us off. He has this crisis of doubt because of his life circumstances. And, and, and when that happens to you, it throws you off track. It rocks your world. It causes you to question all the things that have been sure in your life. But it also has huge potential to strengthen our faith and make us far more durable than we ever were before. And so there are some circles where it's not okay to doubt. And, and, and there are some circles where this kind of expression, like a soft has, is looked down on and judged. And, and this doesn't help, especially when there's intense feelings associated with our, our doubts. Because in some circles, people just want you to push through it and just go, just chill, just get over it, just, just believe. Because maybe people find it to be sinful to, to experience doubt. Or some people, more, more likely than thinking it's sinful, I think oftentimes there's this root of fear Because your doubt becomes a threat to the thing that is their confidence. We're afraid of someone doubting the very thing that gives us assurance because the existence of your intense questions somehow poses a danger to that person's confidence. And I was thinking this week about doubt on the heels of Pastor Dave's message on fear last week, that, that there are certainly doubts without fear, but there's rarely fear without doubt. These things work together. But oftentimes they feed each other. And so oftentimes people's solution who view doubts this way will just say, just believe. But I I don't think that's super helpful. Um, It actually creates a whole group of people who fit in the category of de-churched, right? Like I used to go to church and then I had this question and nobody listened. But what if instead of looking at it through a lens of 
condemnation. We looked at doubt through the lens of growing pains. Like I have three young kids at home and, and like two of them have grown quite a bit and they're like they wake up in the night moaning, you know, it's like, oh, my leg hurts. Like I just got shot by a machine gun. That's really how they're treating it. It's like you're a little bit sore, but okay, right? Like so, go like stick some Tylenol in my veins. Don't worry, we don't do that. But you know that's like the, what they want. Like just like give me something to ease this pain. Like I'm growing, my legs, my bones are like expanding, and uh, and it's it's intense for them, right? But here's the thing: if we treat doubt uh, in a similar way that Jesus treated Thomas, right, with an invitation to bring the questions, to look for the evidence, we'd see it more like growing pains. It's a good metaphor because, you know, it's the worst when you're going through it. You ache, but without the pain, your legs don't grow. You don't get taller. Without the pain, your perspective stays at three feet tall rather than four feet tall. And since Pastor Dave's not here, I can say that being tall has its advantages with its perspective. You know, you can see more. Unfortunately, he can always see more than me. But uh, we, we, have, we have this ability when we grow to have a new perspective. We actually need doubt. Because let me tell you, if you have the same answers your whole life, you're always satisfied with the same answers, what does it say about you? It says that you haven't moved. It says that you haven't changed. You've stayed in the same place. But when we grow and we and in our trust relationship with Jesus, we grow, we move, our perspective shifts. The old ways of thinking don't seem to cut it anymore. Have you ever noticed that? It needs some more complex and nuanced answers because all of a sudden life is throwing more complex and nuanced questions. We need new questions in each new stage of life. Growth needs to happen, but for growth to happen, there has to be a possibility of doubt as well. We need to learn how to read the Bible in more informed ways. And and faith means that we're changing, and changing requires oftentimes the pain of doubt. Doubt actually could become this occasion to thank God and say, what is it that you want to show me and grow in me? The German poet Rainier Rilke, in his letters to a young poet, Uh, One of the most famous quotes in this book says this, I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then someday, far in the future, you will gradually, even without noticing it, live your way into the answer. I'd push back a little and say, do search for answers. Like, the don't search for answers is something I'm a little uncomfortable with, but I would say, search for them, but realize that living with the question is so profoundly helpful to the life of faith. And so this experience of doubt can happen to anyone. It comes out of life circumstances. And it's a huge opportunity for growth. One of the things that we have to understand in this opportunity for growth is the sources of our doubt. It's important to look at the fact that faith doesn't reject reason. What it does, it doesn't, it's actually something that, that is wrestling with experience. Something can, can come along and, and make it hard for the heart to go with, along with what the head wants to affirm. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. He's not saying we don't walk, we, we walk by faith and therefore no reason or no evidence. He's saying we don't walk by the mere appearance of things. In other words, we have to be careful about believing our doubts because our doubts are usually caused by the appearance of things rather than the thing itself. If we've learned anything from like modern physics, it's that like uh, things aren't the way they appear. Like this table is more not here than here. Like there's all this like space in between molecules that are moving around really fast. Like if I could get small enough, I would stick my hand through all of the space between particles, right? It's like not super solid. It's actually just space that looks like a table. I mean, it's a table, but it's right. I don't know. I I'm saying weird stuff because I, I'm not going to see you for 12 weeks. So, like, <laughs> nonetheless, we do learn that, like, the way things appear aren't actually the way they are. And so learning to walk by faith is learning to trust the voice of our shepherd rather than just go by our perceptions of a reality when he has a bigger view, right? And so faith isn't opposed to reason. It isn't holding on to something in spite of evidence. Rather, it's holding on to something in spite of appearances. It involves taking a leap of faith built on reasonable assertions. Assertions like, uh, that are founded on like eyewitness claims of, of disciples who saw Jesus after he died. Like You're making a leap, but it's an informed leap. It's a reasonable leap. And so we stake our claims on our, our life on the claims of someone else. It's not a blind leap, it's an informed leap. And so what does this mean for us to, to wrap this section up on the experience of doubt? First of all, it means that we have to focus on moving toward our doubts as if they are potential to grow. They're not sub-spiritual or they don't make you a bad Christian, but they become a moment for growth. And now, what, what do we... Learn then about the cure to our doubts. So first we learn how to engage them in understanding our, what they are. But we also have to learn how do we face them. What's the cure to our doubts? Asaph makes four moves in this psalm to work through his doubt. And I want to show you each of them. Uh, but you have to understand that all of them fit together. So it's cure for our doubts, singular, because all four are needed to really work through our doubts. Let me show you. Um, the first thing he does is he doubts his doubts. What Asaf does is he deconstructs his doubt. He gets skeptical about his skepticism, right? He looks at his doubts and he says, what's going on with these? See, what he says here is he, in verse 3, if you go back, he says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's something of a confession. He's looking at his doubts. He's looking at his experience, the thing that's throwing off, and he's going, you know what? This is built on envy. I, what's going on in my doubt isn't so much an intellectual dilemma. It's a moral dilemma. I, I'm envious. I want what somebody else has. And so for, in, in order for Asaf to deal with his doubt, he has to deconstruct it. He has to take it apart. He has to get skeptical with his skepticism. He says, what is it that's throwing me off? Let me probe into the roots of my doubts. And he's saying, look, if I'm really honest, if I'm telling the truth, then I have to tell you, I am not really concerned about innocent suffering or the justice of God. Those aren't core issues. What's core issue for me in my doubt is I'm envious. I'm jealous, right? What's motivating my crisis of doubt? It's a character thing. 
Envy is is a negative emotional energy that's aroused when I feel like I need to get what that other person has. I feel entitled and I'm not getting it. I'm not getting what I deserved. And somebody else is getting what I think I deserve. So this isn't primarily an intellectual issue for him. Asaf is confessing and he's saying the origins of my doubt are ultimately about envy. But we can't discover the origins of our doubt until we get skeptical about our skepticism and deconstruct our doubt, doubt our doubts. There's a lot of streams feeding into the lake of doubt. But for Asaf, he recognizes the mainstream is he's jealous. There's a lot of people prospering who are arrogant and wicked. And he's saying, I've been keeping my life clean for no good reason. I'm not getting a reward. You know, he's a Levite. He's like, he, he has no land inheritance anyway in Israel. And he's looking at all the jerks down the road and they're getting grand estates. And they're doing great. And we have to learn how to do this with our doubts and to engage them in our moments of faith crisis and to check our motives and the sources of our doubt and say, what's really at stake? My friend Eric um, was a guy that my friends and I had been praying for for a long time and he was kind of on the fringes of the faith. And he, for a couple of years, really kind of just kind of looked in at Jesus and was kind of checking out Jesus. And he was a very smart guy. He's a school teacher. He's brilliant. And for Eric, what ultimately ended up happening is he had to acknowledge the fact that what was holding him back from faith wasn't that Jesus as Lord and Savior was some unreasonable thing, but he recognized that he was hesitant to, to surrender control. Because when he looked in on Christianity, after looking at it, he goes, this isn't unreasonable. It's not that it's not true, it's that I'm not willing to let it be true. I don't want it to be true. I have a problem with giving up control in my life. And his home life was rough, and so control was really at the core of it. And so for for Eric, the moment of his conversion had everything to do with deconstructing his doubt and recognizing it's not that I, I, I don't think it's true, it's that I'm afraid of it being true because it means that I'm going to allow somebody else to call the shots in my life. But it was in recognizing that that he was willing to see the worthiness of Jesus to be Lord of his life and the unworthiness of himself. So we have to learn how to deconstruct our doubts, to be skeptical about our skepticism. And that's fair, isn't it? I mean, if we're going to be skeptical about our faith, let's be intellectually honest and be equally skeptical about our doubts. The second move that Asaf makes is in verse 15. It's his key moment where he says, "If so verse, again, verse 13 is, Surely in vain I've kept myself pure, right? Now verse 15, If I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. Now he's talking to God. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood or discerned their, the wicked, their final destiny, their end. And so he says, if I spoke like that, if I would have uttered these doubts and used my influence as a religious leader like this, I would have betrayed your children. What he's saying is, look, I was thinking about it like I was all alone, like I was isolated. But then I recognize I'm connected to a family and I recognize my relationship to your children. And it moves me to think about my responsibility of my faith. 
I would have betrayed your children. He realizes his connection to other people, to his faith in their own. And then in verse 16 he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. So what is it that he does? He goes to church. Well, okay, kind of, not really, right? He, he makes a move. He enters the, the temple. Uh, and the temple is this, the, the center of Israel's life and worship. It's the center of the universe for them. And it is where heaven and earth meet for them because it's where the presence of God is. And there's, it's perpetually full of pilgrims, people seeking uh, uh, the Lord. And it's full of sacrifices, these concrete reminders for us off that God's grace is present in his life, that his sin is dealt with by the grace of his atoning work. And he has hope. And there's there, it's there at temple where there's singing and choirs and classes, learning Torah, worshiping and prayer are happening day and night. In other words, what does he do? He, he enters the temple by immersing himself into a community of faith and worship and a community of learning. And it's that immersion into that kind of community that brings a turn. It brings understanding. He's able to discern. He immerses himself into a community faith experience because he didn't think his way into doubts and he can't think his way out of his doubts. He experienced his way into doubts and he's recognized, I have to experience my way out of the doubts. And so I immerse myself into a community experience that is about God and his presence. It's, it's not like we can just think our way out of doubt. Because who are we trusting? We're trusting a person and they're real. I mean, you can think, you can think about your spouse all day long and relate to what you think about them. But pretty soon you're going to bump into the reality of them. You actually live with not an idea of a person, but you live with the person themselves. And so Asaf has this immersion into community. And we don't exactly know what it looks like for him, but we know that if your life experience is throwing you off, you need to move into a different life experience. You need a different kind of community, a different kind of experience of faith, and to help you process life from different angles. Because remember, the issue was formed by his perception. He perceived reality one way and so he immerses himself into a community where he can begin to gain multiple perspectives and so if you are wrestling with doubt because of an intellectual problem get yourself around some smarter people who also can think about it from multiple perspectives if you're wrestling with an emotional root to your doubt get around people who join in prayer and meditation and song and help you emote your way through doubt the question today is, who are you talking to about your questions? Who are you reading to influence your thinking? What are you experiencing to help you process through doubt? If your life circumstances are toxic to faith, go to the temple. It will reshape your mind and heart. And by temple, ultimately what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ comes and embodies all that the temple was meant to be. That in his own person, he is the presence of God because he's the, the God-man. And it is Jesus who sends his spirit to indwell his people. And Paul refers to the church as the temple of God. Get with God's people who know Jesus and exhibit his spirit and experience life with them. There's a third move, though, that Asaf makes, and that's this. 
In verse 18, he says, Truly, you set them in slippery places. So he goes to the temple. He discerns there. He learns to understand from God's perspective. And then he looks at verse 18, Truly, you set them, the wicked, the arrogant, in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. It's beautiful poetry here, folks, because remember how he describes his own experience in 2 and 3? What does he say? I almost slipped. I lost my foothold, right? I, like, I almost tripped big time. But now that I understand from the perspective of doubting my doubts and going to the temple, now what I do is I can compare footholds and I see the destiny of the ones who are wicked and arrogant, right? And so he moves towards his doubt. He deconstructs it. He immerses himself in community and he recognizes the difference between his foothold and the foothold of those he had previously envied. And he says, okay, look, God's good and there's injustice and suffering in the world and this is a problem for me and I need to work it through. But if I compare my foothold and the foothold of the wicked, I see that my foothold is better. They reject the one who gives them firm foundation. He compares their footholds. And here's the deal. In a cultural setting like our own, we have to learn how to compare footholds because the culture says that the opposite of faith is reason. That's just kind of like belief versus unbelief. That that's really the way things work. That there's belief versus unbelief. And it's a total farce. It's not true at all. Because actually, what really happens is there's no neutral ground at all for any of us. It's really just belief versus belief. And the only way to question a belief is to equally stand just as firmly on another belief, another truth claim that you consider superior. There's no neutral ground when you compare beliefs. Everyone is standing on a foothold. Everyone is standing on a truth claim. There is no neutral ground. And so we live in this age of competing beliefs, but the deception is that there are some people who stand on faith and other people who stand on pure reason. And it's just simply not true. Listen to um, C.S. Lewis has this friend named Sheldon Van Auken who wrote this, uh, this story called A Severe Mercy. It's his own, part of it is his conversion experience. And he says, uh, when it came to believing, I realized there was a gap between the possible and the provable. It was possible that Jesus could be God, but how could it be proven? There's this gap. And I wanted to stake my life on the risen... If I wanted to stake my life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. And so I continued about the edge, Van Auken says. But the position that he got himself into as he searched Jesus was he realized that there might not be certainty and proof that Jesus is God, but now there is no certainty that he was not God. He says, I cannot now reject Jesus without a great leap of faith either. And so, when you are in a moment of doubt, ask the question, on what other belief am I standing on that casts this other one under doubt? See, it's always belief versus belief. And so, if injustice outrages you and you think, how could a good God allow injustice? You have to go back and ask the question, where did I get the idea that injustice is outrageous? Where did that outrage come from to begin with? Right? Otherwise, we're just molecules bumping into each other like this table. You have to compare footholds. But after you doubt your doubts, after you enter the temple, after you compare footholds, you also have to search for God himself. You have to search for God's presence in the midst of his absence. This is what the psalmist describes in his experience. Look at verse 21. He says, 
When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. In other words, I hit rock bottom. I let envy just dehumanize me. I was like an animal and I couldn't make sense of it anymore. And I felt like God was absent. But then look there in his absence. What does he find in verse 23? Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. What a transformation. I used to envy the wicked, but now there's this echo of envy at the end of the psalm where he says, after comparing footholds, I see that God is all I have and God is all I need, that he's sufficient. And so he says in verse 26, My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish and you destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, now it gets personal. It started as abstract. God's good to Israel. Now as he wrestles through his doubt, he says this in a personal way. It is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of your deeds. You see, he began with this kind of abstract statement and he ends on the other side of doubt with a very personal reality of the living God. Experience of doubt was the best thing for him because his envy had wrecked him. And now he experiences doubt and it's the path for getting near to God for him. And so the psalm is overwhelmed now with the language of intimacy. Doubt brought him to God. So what do we call this final move that Asaf makes? Searching for God's presence in his absence Or maybe we just call it searching for the hand of God. This is the move we have to make. We search for the hand of God. This is what little kids do when they feel lost, right? Little kids, when they feel like all of a sudden I'm in a big world, when they realize I'm in a parking lot or I I, I, I need an anchor, what do they do? They shoot that little hand up, don't they? And they're looking for somebody to tell them, I got you. They're, They're looking for someone to say, you're safe and secure, you're in. You're on a good foothold, right? They're looking for that, and so they shoot up their little hand to mom or dad, and and that's that's what we're to do, to reach out for God's hand to hold us. And the amazing thing is, when my kids reach out for my hand, they're not reaching out, uh, you know, because of the firmness of their grip, right? They're reaching out because they need the firmness of my grip. They need the comfort of my grip, not not their own. And we do the same thing. So how do we do that? How do we reach for his hand? How do we search for the firmness of his grip? The presence, even in the absence. First of all, you have to see that God hasn't just reached out his hand. He's actually reached out his whole person. He's come as Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden where he's arrested and will ultimately go to the cross. He's, he's quoting Psalms. He's declaring that he's so grieved he could die. He makes it to the cross where he, he declares God's absence in his experience. Why have you forsaken me? Right? It's ultimately a psalm that will end in triumph, but he goes through the, the experience of being crushed by evil. He experiences God-forsakenness. And this is where we meet God in his absence, because he's already experienced it. That moment where Jesus experiences God-forsakenness is where God meets us in the moment of our need. This is God becoming God-forsaken with us and for us. This is... God coming to redeem and conquer our God-forsakenness by his love. 
He's, he's saying, look, you weren't here with your doubts and God-forsakenness first. Jesus was. He experienced it before. And what do you do when you feel that question, that doubt? You learn to kneel with Jesus. You learn to get alongside the one who identifies with you in your God-forsakenness. I realize he's there with you. He's grieving with you. But he isn't just stopped by grief. He overpowers it. He does something about it. He does something about it to bridge the relationship that's torn forever. You see, we have to see that he hasn't just reached out a hand for us. He's reached out and outstretched both hands for us and allowed them to be nailed to the cross for us. It's there that we see the length he will go to to be present with his people. And so in a moment, we're going to go to the table to celebrate that presence, to declare again God's willingness to pay for fellowship with us, to be present to us, to defeat evil, to be near to us through the cleansing of sin, which is what his cross accomplished. And we remember his triumph in his body and his grace in his blood. And we declare his presence is freely given and available to all who will trust Jesus and say, I will put my life in your hand because you've outstretched your hand and given your life for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We cannot help but be thrilled by the possibility of knowing you, of experiencing the grace that you give at the cross. And we thank you that our our creator God is our redeemer God. You come to us even in places of doubt and use it to bring about greater nearness to you. Help us as a church to wrestle well in these places and to learn to trust you in the firmness of your hand experienced on the cross in Jesus' name. Amen.